Hello, my friends. Today, Joel Beasley is talking with Joel Wineland, CTO of RackLive, and they discuss how deploying fully integrated racks can significantly cut deployment time and costs, why many companies are bringing parts of their systems back on-prem from the cloud, and why it's important for leaders to learn to not do everything themselves. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. is the Modern CTO Podcast. Um, so my story, so I don't know how far back we want to go. In college, I was a Luddite and an art major. So my belief was that technology went too wide and too fast and was not uh, an asset to uh, deep thinking, I guess, is the way I would have phrased it. So I wanted to spend my time making oil paintings and charcoal drawings and things like that. Um, ended up getting married um, while I was in college and needed to get a real job. So I took some, seen some ads on the radio, I think, took some computer certifications. So started out with really just a really basic class thinking, all right, cool, I can go get a job for 25 bucks an hour or whatever it would have been at that time. And uh, kind of fell in love with it, realized that the diversity and the uniqueness of what was inside platforms was really very similar to what appealed to me about art. So kind of applied that same mentality to what I was working on um, from a technology standpoint. Got a bunch more certifications because it was fun to collect them back at that time. Those days were kind of silly, but, you know, we're all really proud of our MCSEs and A pluses and server pluses and this and that. Um, So ended up going to work for Dell. Uh, Dell, I'd worked in tech support for a period of time and then got promoted to work in the storage area networking design team. Uh, That led into Dell Professional Services and I got embedded at Walmart for, I guess, close to four years. Uh, Walmart, I did a turn through Dell Professional Services and then through Advanced System Group. I ended up doing a lot of different design work with them on platforms and then a lot of server deployment. So I got my hands dirty, which is part of what we like to do here as well. From Walmart and then moved on to Rackspace, uh, they kind of came through. I had a buddy who worked there and ended up recruiting me, moved in there as a a product developer. So my focus from product development was hardware. So kind of went in there and originally we were buying kind of all package systems from OEMs. So Dell and HP were kind of the two primary that we were running for the most part. But the initiative we were driving there is we were kind of formulating the cloud. So our precursors to what was Swift and you know what became OpenStack. So ultimately ended up kind of running a, a platform design. Initially just me and another guy kind of grew into a group of about eight people where we were kind of evaluating and kind of factoring in what was needed to deploy uh, server platforms that we were more specific in their design rather than kind of accepting what was framed up by the OEMs. Uh, That led into kind of our open compute pursuits, which was a lot of fun. So that was my project for about two years there was sitting on the OCP incubation committee and kind of running platform design around what we needed and how our racks were a little bit different than what Facebook and others would require. Um, Really, really loved doing that. But ultimately I realized that while open compute was really exciting and amazing for someone like a Rackspace or Facebook, it was very hard for smaller consumers to get their hands on, to kind of get in and consume. The other thing that we had done while I was there was done our first full rack deployments. When I'd arrived, everything was deployed out of cardboard. So we were literally unpacking everything, you know, pre-staging racks in the data center and hand installing all that. The data centers hated us because we had piles and piles and piles of cardboard for deploying tens of thousands of servers, right? So it was harder than I thought it would be, to tell you the truth. Originally, I thought, well, what's the difference? Just put all this stuff in the rack and lace it up. 
But the lessons learned there were consistency is king, right? You've really got to be able to button things down, document what you've got and do things repetitively, very, very accurately. Otherwise, rolling things in in the rack gets to be a lot bigger mess than it does uh, just individually installing them. And then secondarily, sometimes you can uh, <laughs> go beyond what's necessary in a design and make your life a lot more complex. Uh, for instance, I remember one story where we were deploying something like 30 cabinets and we needed to pull five cabinets and deploy them to another room for a different solution. Um, but because of the labeling, this is the only difference between the systems and anything else in those cabinets that were labeled differently. We ended up having to fly to Chicago with sheets of labels and relabel hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of cables on both ends just to go ahead and be able to roll that rack into a different spot on the floor. So anyway, after I left, I joined um, Rourke Data, which was a division of Avnet at the time with the goal of trying to make open compute easily consumable, get it on the ground, get it in the, get it in the warehouse, get it on the dock and had some uh, great fun there, but realized that ODM design is a lot of fun, but requires a certain lift that's not necessarily for smaller consumers. Um, if you're deploying one to three racks, at least at that time, it was very hard to get your hands on it because you didn't have any clarity on what was actually coming out the other end of the supply chain. So it was really incumbent upon the large consumers, so Facebook, Riot Games, us at Rackspace and others, to kind of speculate and define what was needed. And then we changed pretty fast because as our needs evolved, we'd go ahead and add, change the resources. So each large-scale production run started producing things that were somewhat different in terms of their feature set and their capabilities, where we were trying on the other side of things to get things packaged and available and in stock so somebody could order some and have them on the dock within a month. So I realized there that there was something different that was needed. So it ended up having a couple of wins with the team here at RackLive. And so they said, hey, can we come in and kind of reframe this, think a little bit differently about what the hardware looks like and how we can help people amplify what they're actually deploying. So taking a look at that, the realization was that experience building racks was something that a lot of the consumers that they had worked with historically were not really that familiar with. So the kind of knowledge of how to craft a standardized template, how to what to put in, what not to include so that you wouldn't be so specific that you limit your flexibility, but so that you can still support it and you still get it laced, clean and deployed. So we built this practice and actually the team here had started about three years prior to me joining with a bunch of guys who left Rackable Systems. So they had a strong background and a lot of knowledge in deploying racks. But the trade-off for us, and I think the thing that makes us unique in the market, is we're very agile and dynamic in terms of how we frame these things. So, for instance, we've had, uh, I don't know who I can name in terms of references, but we've had uh, some social media video companies who originally had a single template that we diverged into three, that then ultimately we were changing the dynamic for every pop that they were deploying around the world. So did 23 countries with them with nearly 23 different designs. I think it was more like 18. But um, so what we realized there was we've got to get the documentation, the standard templates and the test elements kind of framed up so we can move really fast. And so we can test things in a dynamic way, but not be so locked in that when they say, hey, I've got to change my tours for this deployment, I've got to move to that time, it would have been one gig to 10 gig, um, that we're so locked in that it takes months to change the MPI and the build documentation and the structure to go ahead and get those things laced and integrated to their spec. So anyway, that's kind of what led us here and my, uh, my backstory in a way. But Nice. So when I go home tonight and talk to my wife, I'm like, hey, I talked to this guy, another Joel, very cool. He's <laughs> at RackLive. RackLive does this. What, what is the this? Sure. So our claim to fame is really a fully integrated laced rack to deploy into a data center. So basically all you've got to do is go ahead and drop your power whips below the floor, throw your uplinks up, and the rack's off and running. 
Uh, depending on the customer, we'll have a variety of different insertion points into the application stack. Often we're deploying the operating system, pre-configuring things like their IP addresses, host names, SSH keys. To a certain degree, applications, although most customers today prefer to deploy applications using some orchestration platform and don't require us to do a lot of that just to get the basic framework up and running so when the rack hits the floor, it can ping. Um, so it's like a fully enclosed system? Like you you completely assemble the rack and everything, you ship it in like a giant like wood crate or something yeah, and you just absolutely. take it out? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so, pretty cool. Yeah, you can kind of see this is a vinyl yeah. rack behind me that represents its pictures of some of our racks. And that's exactly what it is. It's fully enclosed, fully wrapped up. Um, there's a lot of kind of diversity and complexity in terms of how things are laced and deployed. For instance, you'll find a lot of networking gear and other equipment that has different uh, directions of airflow. So we've had some racks where I have front to back, back to front, side to side, and side to front, for instance. So ultimately we have to do a lot of things to go ahead and baffle and design that rack to handle airflow so that you don't end up mixing hot, aisle into your cold, mixing hot air into your cold aisle or confusing the scenario and compromising your efficiency. So yeah, that's what we build. You can think of it as basically what ends up in the data center gets built right here, gets pushed into a giant wooden crate, gets forklifted into trucks and shipped all over the world. That's awesome. I got to do some of the um, touring of my county's like emergency operations command centers and things of that nature, and I got to go visit their data centers and meet different you know technology leaders, and they have you know like whole like contractors, all of this work to assemble these racks. Cause I remember like being there and they were doing some upgrade and there was like all of these different types of people involved. And the idea that you can just have like a done for you service, you just, you know, call up Joel and be like, Hey, we need these racks and you guys just do it. That sounds awesome. So like with the world going to cloud, right? Who are most of your companies? Like, like healthcare companies, who, where do you fit in the market? It's an interesting question. So we don't do a lot of marketing. We're more kind of tightly entwined with those that we know and the guys that we work with kind of move shop to shop to shop. So it's a lot of word of mouth. And we've been around, you know, ASA as the parent company has been around for 35 years. Rack Live now has been around for going on 12. Um, so functionally, what we end up looking at is really a large swath of advertising technology. So we work with a lot of the people in the ad tech space, uh, both because they have a lot of geodiversity. They're trying to deploy kind of pops and elements all around the world at typically co-location facilities. Can, can um, I interrupt that, you? What, what is a pop? I don't know what uh, a pop is. Point of presence. So a small oh. or small-ish footprint might be one to five racks that's deployed in a location that's often kind of near your point of consumption or your user base. Um, oh, so if, so if I was like like Cloudflare, maybe that type yeah, of company, exactly. yeah. I would need different places based off of you know how my business is growing in different locations. Absolutely. That's cool. Yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm, I like no, to interrupt no. because when I hear these things, I'm like, I was like, I don't think he's talking about the email server. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I did have a question uh, when you were doing the background stuff. I wrote it down. Um, you so you were at Dell, but you were like an employee that was inside of Walmart, like the sort of like employee leasing type deal for lack of a better term. And, and so my question there is I have noticed a trend of people coming out of Walmart that are awesome technology people and uh, everyone from like Jeremy, I think he just moved over to Pen be the CTO of Pinterest to uh, Asir, I think. Uh, and he was like CTO of uh, William Sonoma and like just really great people. And so my question to you is, you know, there's obviously this huge company, many different departments. Did you pick up on that too? Like, did they have a great culture when you were there? 
Um, so, yeah, they had a very tight culture. And at the time, you know, the diversity of deployments and scale was something that was kind of pre-cloud, to be honest with you. I think, you know, you saw Amazon and others kind of growing up and around them, but it wasn't common to see a lot of people consuming IT from a utility standpoint with very large environments. So you could kind of view basically what we worked in there as a precursor for cloud, a very, very, very large set of enterprise data centers within a vast distribution with thousands of stores with you know their own kind of data center footprint and other equipment that's embedded in them. So ultimately, I think just the problem set that they had to solve kind of made some of the best technologists gravitate toward that space. And yeah, some of the guys I got to work with there were, or some of the team, I should say, I got to work with there were literally amazing. So ended up a few of them kind of left. One came with me to Rackspace, ended up being a CTO for another shop in Canada and uh, you know, now is working for a, a much different place, trying to change the way people uh, consume. Um, how do I say this? Anyway, I'm <laughs> working in, yeah. the, uh, in the medicinal products industry. Ah, um, but <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Early on, I had this really cool guy, like when we first started the podcast, his name was uh, Roger and I always like butcher his last name, like Obanado or something. But when that space was expanding, like when they were getting the first approvals, he, no one, all the credit card processors like backed out, yep. right? And so he came in with like a point of sale system and a processing system and his business just exploded. And uh, so I got to see him meet with him like right when he was in the middle of it and then watch him. And now I have like mutual friends with him, like watch him as he like sold the company and is now off like advising other companies. But I was like, man, what an interesting spot. What a great like uh, position to be in because it's like not that controversial doing the point of sale systems. Right. So I was like, dude, good job, Roger. <laughs> um, uh, QTS data centers. Like I know David over there, who's super awesome guy. And they mentioned that they're like one of the largest by square foot data centers in the world. Are those companies, do they have like their own internal teams that are doing this? Are they working with contractors like you to help when they boot up new facilities? Is there any connection there? So typically, yeah, they'd work often. And, you know, I don't know QTS directly, but they'd work often with people like us to deploy in the infrastructure that they need. So it depends on the scale of the infra. A lot of guys would go ahead and rack and deploy their own gear to a point. But if you're going to need 30 racks or more, ultimately that becomes a huge headache and is a huge mess. Plus, it also depends on the dynamism, right? How many racks are you trying to deploy? If you need kind of a pre-staged thing that gets you some storage capacity or whatever up, you're rocking and rolling. But as you're deploying that kind of cyclically, you know, month over month, three cabinets or six cabinets to keep things growing out ahead, ultimately that becomes a huge headache. I think in general, though, QTS, I'd view them as more of a, of a co-location facility with the capability to offer advanced services. And 90% of what we deploy ends up in co-location facilities that's you know, sourced for our customer base. So their customers are our customers, and basically we're partners in that scenario. One thing that caught my eye when I was doing the prep for this conversation is a couple times this thing was mentioned called the circular economy. Okay. I was like, I've never heard that before. I was hoping you could explain it to me. Sure, sure. So that lives more in the, uh, in the realm of IT Renew and other partners who are cycling things that have reached their end of life for a given purpose or maybe exceeded the value for a particular application set, but haven't exhausted their financial potential value. So in the circular economy, what you're looking at, and this is now a kind of top level open compute project and has a lot of champions, is you're looking at people who purchase, I don't want to say used gear, but maybe long-term burned in gear, if you want to think of it in those terms. <laughs> Experience gear. <laughs> and then yeah. uh, refactor those so that they're usable for different purposes and then cycle them out. So you can think of it basically as we see this cadence of technology kind of driving us forward. In my opinion, we're in the most exciting time from a hardware standpoint 
because what we're seeing now is computing in general has been kind of viewed as, as, general, as kind of commodity, right? You have cloud that offers you a very diverse set of resources. So ultimately, when you want to go ahead and deploy your own gear, you either have a need to drive some specialized set of capabilities, uh, reach maybe a geo that's something that's not served very well by the cloud providers, which is getting narrower and narrower all the time, or of course cost, which costing can play a big factor. And that's why we see a lot of our customers repatriating from the cloud. But secondarily, as you look at that bulk computing, you start to think in terms of, all right, cool, the computers that I deployed three years ago, right? They're depreciated now. That asset's basically time to be cycled out and taken off the books, but it's not a non-workable entity, especially as I'm looking at you know, microservices or virtual workloads where the hardware specificity may not be that dramatic. So what you're seeing in the circular economy is both the opportunity to kind of change the cost constructs that are driving hardware acquisitions by using what, you know, I don't wanna say used, but using used gear, previously deployed gear maybe is a better term. Um, and then also you're looking at people who have a new type of environmental sensibility. This is something I didn't know until I started working with my friends at IT Renew for a while was, Basically, when you look at what's happening in the industry, most of the embodied carbon that gets into a platform really comes prior to that platform being powered on for the first time. It comes from mining, it comes from shipping, it comes from manufacturing. So ultimately, by preventing the need to have new systems manufactured, you can really allay a huge benefit to the earth overall by preventing some of those upfront costs and demands for some aspects of a workload. So it's typically not a space that RackLive spends a lot of time. We're, uh, we're pretty aggressively charging out front. But I think in general, it's a space that I'm very supportive of. It's one that I think makes a lot of sense if it's a if it's a workload that fits that use case. Yeah, thanks for explaining that to me. Um, quantum computing, as you were talking, I was, I was thinking about this. Uh, when you see emerging technologies like that, right? How, like, what are your thoughts on it? Do you start offering it? Do you wait for your customers? Like, how do you, how did quantum computing come into your life and does it apply to Rack Live? Good question. I mean, I'll, I'll answer it easily. Not today. You know, our customers, this is something that when I kind of started my journey into making open compute more generally consumable when I left, when I left Rack Live and tried to kind of bring this more customized and tailored kind of solution mindset to a much broader user base, um, I realized that there's a number of dynamics that play into deploying things that make sense at a certain scale, but maybe don't at a much smaller or a more transactional kind of scale. So I'd say quantum computing is interesting to us, but isn't part of anything that we're, that we're leveraging today. Where we're seeing the kind of bleeding edge from our perspective technology come into play is something that's been around for years, right? I mean, using GPUs for general purpose computing is not a new capability set or not a new resource. But now they're seeing more frameworks baked to consume those. Look at Kinetica or Spark Rapids and other kind of packaged frameworks that can layer on top and actually make database consumption on a GPU accelerated backend something that is very easy, or I shouldn't say easy, but is very direct to adopt for application developers. We're starting to see that metamorphosize. And that's kind of the area where I think the, the most excitement in the industry comes from is application of what you'd call AI ML workloads to problem sets that traditionally were kind of out of scope, whether that's optimizing your environment and deploying workloads where they're best suited, or whether that's actually the core aspects of what you're doing in terms of image extraction, feature extraction, natural language processing, and et cetera. So that's where I see the most excitement where we're at today. Um, moving into alternative computing architectures, we are seeing finally, and this has been something I've worked on since I was at Rackspace, the attempt to move ARM into the, the server arena to make it a realistic um, server platform. So. Worked with a number of different companies who had kind of really interesting, I'd say almost false starts in the space, did pretty well. But finally, we're now seeing some traction in that arena with Ampere. 
and seeing the ARM platform start to become a realistic contender for computing workloads that a lot of our customers consume as well. But I think a lot of our guys are kind of rolling with the punches in terms of their apps. They're growing fast. Typically, we're with people who are either taking their first deployments off of cloud that were with us or kind of expanding that footprint. And I don't want to say that our customers aren't using cloud. They certainly are. Everyone does. But our customers have identified that area where it's either business differentiating to go ahead and deploy systems into a more diverse set of locales or where they can differentiate whether it's cost or capability by being more specific on the hardware they're deploying and deploying to the metal. So that's kind of, kind of where we stand. You're saying you're excited because they're going to bring ARM to the cloud? Uh, I'm, ARM's already heavily what? in the cloud. I'm excited. Oh, okay. Starting to see my customer base uh, willing to adopt ARM and starting to deploy it for some of their core workloads. I think having diversity in the, uh, the computing arena is excellent. And ARM gives us a lot of really unique capabilities and having a tailorable architecture that really is kind of metamorphosized with the use case. So it's not that I'm not an Intel fan. I definitely am. And the largest majority of what we deploy is Intel today. But I'm starting to see some traction and more diversity where we'll see both the uh, competitive pressures add some value and we'll also see that people can start to do some new things and think differently about what defines a hardware platform than they did you know, two years ago. For the supply chain stuff, I'm, I'm kind of a nerd, right? <laughs> and when I saw those ships out there and everything, my first thought was, and I'm bringing this up because you like automation. I was like, why is like, how is there not automation deployed here? I agree with you. I think it's a human issue and it's something that is relatively easy to automate away. So you're, you're one of the founders of this company? So, no, actually, RecLive was founded before I joined. So I okay. joined about three years after they had kind of started to do their initial deployments. Yeah, when I saw that you were that you spent some time at uh, Rackspace or when I saw you were in San Antonio and you also were doing, you know, I learned what RackLive was. I was like, oh, I wonder if he was at Rackspace when he's in San Antonio because I became a customer of theirs at one point, like in 2007, maybe, or between 2007, 2009, right? It's hard to know. But... They had just like purchased an empty mall that had become yeah, defunct and to expand. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I was like learning all about them. And I remember like, you know, the whole process of booting up servers. And then I remember the first time somebody showed me like Amazon Web Services. And I just, my mind was just blown. I was like, this is incredible. I'm not, I don't have to submit tickets, make purchase orders, get into like long contract. Like I don't have to do any of this stuff. And so I, I was just super excited. And then I was more excited too to learn that like, their software advanced enough to where when people buy racks like yours, they can have that sort of cloud experience just like on-prem. And yep. when that happened, I think a lot of people were seduced by the, the the ease of deploying applications and that whole you know system and process of the cloud. And so they went over there, but then some of them you know didn't like it. But when that cloud-like deployment technology transferred over to the racks, I think a lot of people were were super excited about that. Yeah, yeah, honestly. I mean, and you see it in a lot of spaces, right? It's interesting for us. It's largely very heavy, very disk storage dense racks within a proliferation of kind of more application specific, uh, often, you know, GPU nodes and et cetera, that are not only say subordinate, but are far fewer than what we see in terms of the storage capacity. But if you look more broadly at kind of that automated rack deployment space where you see people like Nutanix and others kind of offering or, you know, Dell's v, uh, VxRail, for instance, um, you see something that offers that cloud experience, but you can deploy it wherever you like or actually kind of you know, consume it in a hybrid fashion. It's exciting technology, honestly. It's, uh, we, <laughs> we hang on for dear life deploying, uh, deploying deep storage racks and their associated infrastructure. 
But I think in general, I see a lot of spaces, and this you'd ask about healthcare and other arenas, where the the general purpose nature of a, of a you know densely virtualized environment that's deployed with something like a VX Rail can ultimately change that dynamic and give them the same fluidity and flexibility that cloud offers that they that they can have in house. So it's exciting stuff. Do companies have like split stuff? Because I'm thinking like if as you know, let's say my company gets super big, right? Like doing hundred million dollars, you know, whatever. Got a lot of people. I'd imagine like most of my stuff would be cloud, but there would probably be like twenty percent, like my R and D type stuff, the stuff that I don't even want there to be a chance it's on anyone else's platform. And I'd probably have like some racks of my own. Do companies do that, or am I a crazy person? Oh, not at all. No, I think it's actually potentially the other way around. Um, what we see generally is everybody uses cloud. We used to say this at Rackspace all the time: is you know, cloud is for everyone, not for every workload, right? Um, so functionally, all, every customer that I work with uses cloud. Where I see it is either more in developing applications. So it's often kind of as they're getting off the ground, getting things going, because you may not know the growth question. You may not have a predictable kind of curve in terms of how you need to adopt instances or whatever the resource set that you're deploying is. As that grows, the costs of clouds also amplify, right? So you have transit fees, you have bandwidth costs, you have obviously the cost of the instances that you have, which there are various ways to offset, but ultimately, in the end, at a certain set point, my belief is 100% that it is cheaper to run your own infrastructure than it is cloud. Now, that's a pretty high set point, right? But you can save money by running your own infrastructure. So what I see a lot of customers doing is getting their application stack off the ground, getting their business running, getting things going, using the cloud. And then as they start to grow, they start to go ahead and compartmentalize aspects of that and say, I want to move my bulk storage away from the cloud. I want to move my big data analytics environment away from the cloud or potentially use them in concert. So I keep the cloud running for maybe burst workloads or transactional things that come up during the holiday seasons, but I have the anchor of the business that runs and the geos that I've designated that is running on my own dedicated gear. So for us, it's pretty common. And I'd say every customer that we have uses both. Just uh, we're definitely able to keep busy running the, uh, the infrastructure that they're deploying into uh, their colos and data center facility. Do you have like a just-in-time kind of concept uh, when you're ordering equipment or building racks, or do you have a bunch of inventory like in your storage? We're pretty much just-in-time. Um, some okay. of the changes for us in terms of COVID, we've had to take kind of a, of a stand around things like memory and SSDs just because the lead times are prohibitive around some of those aspects. But in general, we're built to order, and our supply chain is pretty much entirely just in time, minus a few components that are that are different now than they were two years ago, two and a half years ago. Because we're just in time, getting it built, getting it shipped just as fast as we can. So it's a lot of effort to get a three to five rack pod deployed in 60 to 80 days, especially now with supply chain the way it is. So it's uh, it's a hard run to the finish and get it out the door. So, What about like... Did you experience, because I know you, you're obviously, you're a nerd too, right? So you're researching stuff, you're understanding the supply chain. Um, one thing I hadn't completely wrapped my mind around uh, is the chip shortage and the cars. Like, it's really hard to get these cars. Um, can, did you, have you researched that at all? Not in depth. I mean, my read on it personally is, is that what we're seeing is the kind of transitory impact of two things. One, the demand increasing rather than going down, right? And then secondarily, the impact on the workforce being able to produce. And that production impact is something that tails the, the demand pretty considerably, right? Because it takes a long time to manufacture a chip and get it into the supply chain so it can be put into a final product. So I think ultimately my read on it is, is we're still seeing the blowback. Well, it's a variety of things because the supply chain, like you said, it's not just about chips stuck in the harbor. In fact, not even the most significant impacts on our supply chain 
are about being able to unload ships. It's more about being able to get the raw materials necessary to produce the resource that we require. Um, so my read on that, and again, I wouldn't want to say I'm an expert on it, is what we're seeing there is an impact on the workforce that trickles its way all the way out to us. And the expectation probably, because I think we all had this perspective when things started out with COVID, that as things locked down, demand would tail off. So ultimately, production could reduce. And now the production did not actually increase pretty considerably across the board for anything with a chip installed. Now we're left with a, a backlog that's very, very hard to fill. I think plus we're seeing some transitions where demand is in pockets where it may not have been expected, or if it was expected, it wasn't accounted for. We're seeing this with GPUs. We're seeing this, you mentioned with, you know, truck chips, for instance, right? I don't yeah. think you can buy a Chevy Silverado right now if you wanted to, right? Um, so I, I have one, but yeah, I had to order it. My friend owns a Chevy dealership and I was trying to talk with him about it, but most of the information he gets is from corporate. Right. And so when I bought it, they, they, there's none on the lots. They have no inventory. And when you buy them, you just have to buy the ones that are being shipped in without seeing it. And then they, um, I was so glad I bought it when I did, cause I bought it like earlier this year. And so it's a 2021 and in 22, they stopped shipping a lot of them with the heat in the, the, the seats because the chips, so they have like a little credit to like retrofit it. So they just said, all right, forget it. We're just not going to put chips in the seats. We're going to just ship it without some features and send it off. They like the auto start a couple different things. They just like cut, they just cut from the, from the year. And they said, we'll give you a credit and a voucher and you can come back when we have the chips. But one of the things I was thinking about was like, I've got to interview this cool guy named um, Jonathan. He's a company called Grok. They make chips, like incredibly fast chips that are like specific for, I, I don't want to say what it is. I, don't, I forget, but they're specific for some task, right? And um, so, you know, he did a startup. Like he did a startup, he made chips. He's out there in the market selling these chips, you know? And uh, if, if I remember correctly, they weren't like super dependent on outside sources. Like they can continue to make their chips. And I'm thinking to myself like, okay, we've been hearing about this chip shortage for at least two years. Where's the company that's just like, oh, we need these chips for these cars. Let's just go make them. Yep. Well, the, uh, yeah. you know, I'm no expert on the back end there, but to me, the foundry is the problem, right? And there's a, a pretty significant lift and a lot of time necessary to go ahead and get a a fabricator off the ground who can actually bring the silicon into a usable state, right? So I think structurally what we're looking at there is there's a lot of factories that I've heard are under development, but you're looking at hundreds of millions of dollars of investment to go ahead and bring something up. And then transactional foundries who will go ahead and run, you know, chips for you or for me if I have an executable design, even notwithstanding the technology pursuit, notwithstanding validation, getting my chip to work and et cetera, assuming that, you know, it is reasonable that someone could produce one, ultimately ends up saying, I'm now in a line with a whole bunch of other people who are trying to go ahead and consume time on that foundry to get my silicon actually cut. So I think that's, we don't have enough foundries is the, is in my opinion, the problem. But you're right. Cause I got to talk with, um, uh, Lenovo, like the C2 of Lenovo art when, when this whole thing happened, because, you know, you just brought up something that I had forgotten. It's not just this because it's silicone, right? It's like it's not just the chips for the cars. Like we went remote, so there was millions of the billions of these whatever devices that needed to be purchased. And I got to talk to him about like the mistakes and how hard that. Yeah, exactly. I got to talk to him about like the mistakes and how hard all that was, you know. But yeah, that that completely makes sense. If you have if the foundry is 
agnostic really to like the overall thing, then that can be a, a, a bottleneck point. Yep. I think that's right. really where our chip shortage comes from is the fact that we don't have enough people who are capable of pressing it. And then there's not enough agnostic ones who can as well. Right. So, I mean, and even Intel takes up a large amount of say TSMC or other foundries time making things like, you know, I've read for instance, that we're more than a million units backlog on one gig um, ICs so that we may have to start to see motherboard designs changing to move away from using that one gig chip for the BMC, the baseboard management controller. So there's availability of other chips, but that chip being so far backlogged now will start to trickle in and impact our motherboard supply or change design. So it's going to be an interesting next couple of years because I think a lot of this just wasn't foreseen in terms of where the demand comes from. Everyone thinks one gig, what do I care about a one gig NIC for? Right? I'm running 100 gig and 25 gig. But in the end, every system that they deploy typically has that on it just for sideband or for remote management. So if you can't get that, you're either dropping that feature set from your board, which is a design change. You're waiting to go ahead and get it in there or the design has to kick up and implement something that's really not needed for the functionality, but just needed because it meets the needs of someone trying to consume it. And it has to be lit up and has to run. Right. I'm, I've got a couple more questions. Does anyone ever like request like crazy racks like that you design them or color them or put some print on them, like make them look interesting? Has anyone ever done that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, you know, we actually really enjoy doing that kind of stuff. So we have one very large customer who's, I guess, in the Web 2.0. I don't know how to describe them. I don't want to say any names that I'm not allowed to say. So anyway, but basically they have their own kind of uh, iconography. So their own characters, et cetera, that they, you know, pretty prolific. They use very uh, significantly. So they had us do uh, printed sides for the rack, silk screened with these characters doing different things. Um, and then basically a lot of times we're deploying rows of gear, right? So you'll start in with your first three racks and then move on. So for theirs, basically we're skinning the ends with modular panels as they'd add their next ones that come in, snap those panels off, move them to the next end. It was a pretty slick, uh, pretty slick look. I have some who want lights in the rack to go ahead and illuminate certain bits. Um, you'll see this with, uh, just as an example, people like uh, Cerberus or um, Sava Nova, where they're trying to illustrate that they have kind of new kind of key differentiated technology. I don't want to say necessarily that either of them would be doing that, but I think you'll see more differentiated bits like that. And then also see some, you know, we do a lot of custom rack design because we have our own in-house mechanical engineering team. And usually that's bracketry to go ahead and handle support for additional equipment uh, to let me deploy a 4,000 pound rack that you can move across the floor. Um, you have to reinforce the floor typically, but to let you deploy, say, six or 800 hard drives in a rack. The other things I've seen is in some of the crypto space, we have guys wanting racks that are three high. So you forklift one rack on top of the next, on top of the next, and bolt them together. And that's a unique problem. And I don't want to say that without a structural mess, we've solved that one yet. Ultimately, yeah, we see a lot of unique customization, whether it's cosmetic with cartoons and things like that, um, or whether it's kind of functional and structural, like the crazy tower thing. So. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's like, to think of how difficult that would be. Now you're going to have to like build a ladder on the side of it if you need to go up there and make a change. That sounds pretty pretty amazing. Now, I don't have much experience like in the industrial side of things, but we did make like my wife and I made some friends with some other kids um, at like our church and I went to see his business and he has like they make off-road parts, right? So he's got this giant warehouse and these machines that are like 20 30 feet long, five, eight, 10 feet high, and they move so fast and you can like put a metal in there and cut brackets and you know, they do like, you know, off-road type stuff. Yep. Um, and 
I was blown away by how fast and large these machines were to cut their own parts. Do you guys have any of that or do you use like a partner when you do your AutoCAD designs and need brackets? Oh, gotcha, yeah, we use contract manufacturers for that. We don't have cool. any metal fabrication in-house. Um, we do our own design end-to-end, -end, so our racks are our rack. They're about 90% of the racks that we deploy. But yeah, our CMs are either in Southern California, China, and then one on the East Coast that we typically work with. You have exactly what you've described, right? Water jets and CNC and plasma cutters and yeah, impressive stuff. Yeah, I saw one of the plasma cutter things and I was like, that's a laser. And he was explaining to me how your building has to be in the specific place for this like three cycle electricity. Like there's some type of electricity they need in order to do it three phase or something. But it was it was so interesting because I didn't realize that these things could be so large and move so fast and, and cut with such incredible precision. Everything just seems to be moving so fast in every little corner of our of our world. And so that brings me to like the question about like the future for for your area. You're obviously very narrowly. You're an expert in your area. What are some of the things that we're going to see in the future? And you can choose the distance of future. You can go 100 years, you can go one year. I don't know whatever is relevant to you. Well, I think in the short term future, we're going to see more complex workloads adopted by a broader set of customers. And I think this is something that you know, for instance, at Rackspace, one of my early projects was evaluation of what we could do with FPGAs. Um, and we were trying to apply that to a couple of different aspects involved with the cloud and network processing. But it ended up that for us, the lift to go ahead and build the team and et cetera, to get to where that made sense was beyond kind of the perspective that, or beyond the investment, I guess, that we were willing to make at the time. That's now, and I have SSDs with FPGAs bolted on that the manufacturer of the SSD provides the capability to go ahead and iterate the code base for that dynamically. So they can literally evolve what the SSD controller can do inline and change its functionality, give it new capabilities and new resource sets. You've seen this with say programmable networking for a long time. I don't think we're even close to the cusp of what that entails, but to make those things generally consumable, and this was kind of my, you know, where I ran my head into, is it FPGA or I consume someone else's ASIC, right? was the, the lift, right? If I'm building out a facility that I could save, and I could say, all right, I save 10 watts per every server and I can go ahead and reach the same workload. At some point, multiplying that out, I'm building a new facility to account for that, that power demand, right? If I'm building a new facility, I'm expending a couple hundred million dollars depending on how I'm deploying a facility. It's worth it for me to go ahead and make the investment and draw that through. The skill set, of course, has to exist. And I think this is what I'm starting to see now is the commoditization of that skill set, the breadth of it. So moving away from something that's so special purpose and so tailored that it takes many, many months to reach a value prop from a given resource set or a technology base to now being able to just adopt things off the shelf with some standard APIs, with some capability, evolve those to meet your needs. And now really starting to see what I, what I personally believe is sort of a renaissance in hardware design. So opening up the space that says there's not, it's not like these problems are new problems really. It's now there's a new accessibility to attack that problem in a different way. And rather than go run out an ASIC that you have to design, tape out, print and cut, and then wait for a few years to fully monetize, you can now really start to see that change come and see new designs iterate rapidly, even as we're, even as we're deploying them, right? So I think that's where I'd mention things like, you know, Connecticut, Spark Rapids, and some of the other suppliers we're working with on different component sets. But I think as you start to look at that, opening up new programmable vehicles and making them standardized, whether through a kind of canonical API or whether through just a kind of you know, known application packaged use case is something that we'll really see change things in the course of the next few years. 
Going out further, you asked about quantum um, or wet or bio. To me, all of those things kind of live on the on the horizon that I'm sure when we look at cloud providers who are spending billions literally of dollars on infrastructure alone, they're able to go ahead and put the investment in place to look at fundamentally different modes of computation. I think for our use cases and our customer base, we're still a decade away, right? We'll trail uh, seeing most cars on the road being driven with standard operating systems and et cetera. But I am starting to see a willingness to explore things that are outside of the common mode of deployment. Microservices kind of opened this up. So while most people I work with today still are deploying a standard kind of basic environment, we do almost all Linux, um, but deploying a standard basic environment and then running microservice workloads or other applications on top of that. I think what we think of as an operating system ultimately will start to be kind of redefined and refactored just because, you know, you look at things like Talos as an interesting kind of uh, adoption in that space, which is a microservices framework and operating system framed up specifically for that purpose. At some point, I think we'll start to see things that are taking that alignment and orientation to build something that's general purpose and generally capable and really kind of focusing that in, dotting the I around something that's tailored very well for what it's built for. And it'll change the way that we operate. I mean, I'm kind of a sysadmin and a hardware builder at heart. And we've been fortunate in that space by, you know, you know how to punch keys, you know, a little Python, you can do some amazing things. But I think that may be changing and it's time for us to start to think differently in terms of how do we program, what do we program to, and what resources do we use? Because I don't know that we'll expect to see systems that operate like the systems of yesterday in the next five years. Well, thank you for that. I, I use this as investment advice. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I like getting to learn about the future and, and where things are headed from people that are like really in it. Um, I've got two more questions. I, I know we're coming up on time. Um, do you have, can, can we do two more questions? Sure. Is that okay? Yeah. All right, cool. Um, the first one is how can I like refer you? So when people approach me, you know, um, what would be the thing that they, like the problem that they're having, would it be that they need, if someone approaches me saying, oh, I need racks or something like that, I'll be like, oh yeah, you should go talk to Joel. Or if like they have some specific problem and need some specific type of rack, like what should indicate that I send people to you? Oh, sure, sure. So I think taking it one level lower, the cloud's too expensive. I'm struggling with the cost is kind of the, the space where we see a lot of transition and a lot of change there. Moving that into our arena, it would be I'm thinking about my first hardware deployments, but you know that's complex. Where do I deploy? How do I deploy? What does the gear need to look like? And how long is it going to take? Those are the questions that really my team's specifically here to help somebody answer. Um, the other side of that coin is I have racks, but they're hard to support. I mean, you know, a lot of our guys are in lightly manned facilities or facilities where they only have smart hands resources that aren't their actual people, right? Whether you're in Singapore or in Amsterdam or in Salt Lake City. I see a lot of places where people are struggling with, I don't really have the wherewithal to put resources at every one of these locations and train them on my infrastructure. So how can I get something that's defensively supportable in a remote location without a lot of headache and without a lot of risk? So I think in those scenarios, that's really where we stand out. And I'd say ultimately, whether it's me or one of my competitors in the space, they should really start to think differently about how they deploy. If everything's buttoned up, if everything's well-documented, if everything is standardized and locked into a kind of designated configuration, then ultimately it'll make that so much easier and they'll be able to get those things lit and on the ground like clockwork rather than having to, uh, to kind of piecemeal it through and have outages that are relatively constant because you can't send smart hands into a facility and have them address an outage with the system without causing a bunch of other problems in a rack when it's not set up appropriately, right? Yeah, get so, a little gremlin in there. <laughs> Racklive.com, is that the website? Yes. Boom, there we go. So people can go to racklive.com. That's a great name. It's easy to remember. 
Uh, and then they, they can just get little pop-ups. They can request quotes, learn more, or we can put like your link to, to your LinkedIn, things of that nature in the, in the show notes so people have access to it really easily. Dude, this is great. Uh, last question here. Best leadership advice you've ever received? <laughs> I'm not sure I comply with this one, but I'd say it's still <laughs> the, the best is don't try to do it all yourself. So that's, you know, we're a small team. And while I do have like 13 in my group to do various aspects of what we're doing from a production standpoint, and I love to punch keys, I'd say my, the best advice I've gotten is um, learn how to delegate. I love it. For me, it's like, I tend to go there too. So it's, it's at first it was like, you know, like a diet, like it's unrealistic just to change everything at once. So it's more about like catching myself, <laughs> catching myself in the act and then being like, okay, I need to, to bring in someone else. No, that's good advice. You know, I'll give you one other one, actually. So my old manager at Rackspace used to say, I'd build a battleship to cross a stream. Um, so don't uh, <laughs> know the problem and uh, attack the problem, not the idea of the problem would be the other thing that I'm definitely guilty of on almost a daily basis still. Um, although it's more fun to build elegant things, right? This is crazy. So that, was his, that was like his advice to you? His advice to me was don't build a battleship to cross a creek, right? That, was, that's uh, well said. I'm going to like yeah. write that one down. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.